Welcome to the Dunamis EQ podcast. Today, we are joined by Richard Washington, the founder of Tech Talent. Thank you so much, Richard, for joining us today. Thank you totally for having me. Absolute pleasure. My absolute honor and pleasure as well. Um, so Richard was introduced to me by my good friend, Joseph Green, who they were working together on getting Joseph a role. And he was raving about Richard. He's like, this is the best recruiter I've ever had. Like, he was just telling me all this stuff you were sending to him, the value you were adding. And I was like, he sounds perfect for my podcast. <laughs> so <laughs> firstly, thank you for the amazing work that you do in placing people in amazing roles. Um, yeah. And yeah, thank you for being here. So would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, talking a bit about your journey of how you got to where you are today? Yes. There you go. I told you they'd be dogs. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I live, I right on cue. <laughs> yeah, my, my business, Tick Talent, um, and I live and work is basically, let me, let me put my words back in. So my business, Tick Talent, is based in a dog hotel. So my wife <laughs> runs Rusty's Dog Hotel, where we have every day about five dogs, whether for daycare or boarding. So um, wow. it's impossible that I will speak with someone without there being this beautiful <laughs> orchestra of barks. <laughs> so my story, it's quite interesting actually, because I, I, um, my favorite interview question, whenever I interview someone for a okay. role for, for a company that I'm hiring for, is to tell me their story from birth to being in the room with me today. Wow. Um, <laughs> okay, answer that, your own question. I know, right? I know, I know. I've only been asked that question once when we did like a bit of a, an off-site on my old CEO's boat. And, uh, mm. and I was, I've never been asked this question, but I've asked it probably about 5,000 times. Um, so, <laughs> so, yeah. so my story, I was born in 1983 in okay. a little town called Chichester on the south coast of England. No, I really went to school story. in Chichester, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah, I did. What a lovely yeah. place, right? That it's beautiful, beautiful Roman wall. Lovely beautiful. little place. Lovely the cathedral place. yeah sorry i interrupt right. you go, go, yeah, go, go. Place. so and, and that kind of that sort of like small town uh kind of echoed really my first 18 years of life grew up in mm. the west coast or the west uh, west sussex west coast of america would be much cooler to be there <laughs> and uh and had like a really nice life 2.4 mm. children wonderful parents really like no sort of traumas or anything that really shaped my character had a mm. lovely loving family and, and a really nice life but what I would say is I was never really passionate about anything at school. I kind of cruised through all of school, being like a kind of B student for everything. Um, got really passionate about a few things, namely football manager. Uh, <laughs> became absolutely obsessed with that game okay. um, from about nine years old through to probably about 25, to be completely honest with you. Um, and a few sports became really obsessed with as well, but wasn't really engaged with, with much of it. It was much more about the social side for me. And then I did the classic thing that most people do when they're 17, 18, which is I don't really want to get a job. I'm going to go to university. And so picked picked a degree in leisure marketing at Bournemouth University. Really? Yeah. Which okay. is um, it's funny because I kind of I do kind of work in marketing, which is yeah. one of the few people that I know that does what I do who actually kind of studied it. Um, but leisure, why leisure? It's like the disposable income part of marketing, where I was definitely mm. in corporate now. And um, again, same thing, cruise through university, didn't really pay much attention, failed my first year having way too much fun. And then finished university after five years mm. and um, and went again, don't really know what I wanna do for a job, big question, um, let's go and work in a nightclub. So I worked in a nightclub <laughs> on, the, what? on the front door as a VIP host. So very, I was basically- Oh, very in. leisure marketing. That, that very leisure matches. marketing. That actually matches, yeah. Total alignment. And so, <laughs> My first night on an Elements nightclub in Bournemouth, if anyone's local and old enough to know what that means, um, was to let Portsmouth Football Club and West Ham Football Club players into the VIP lounge. So I was like meeting, you know, Teddy Sheridan cool. and Andy Cole. And I was like, this is the best job in the world. <laughs> and then it kind of went downhill from Tagged that. after that. <laughs> and then I had, um, I had probably the first day that turned my life around, about nine months into that. Um, into that, that job which was it was like a Wednesday night about one in the morning I'm on the front door with a bunch of really great people who I loved to work with um, who were all a bit older than me I was 22 at this time and they're all like okay. you know in their mid-30s and they all hated the job 
So they're great people, really fun. Or mm -hmm. most, a lot, most of them had degrees, but they mm -hmm. kind of just got into these jobs and then it became the thing they had to do to pay the mortgage and they kind of mm -hmm. fell out of love with it. So all they did was talk about, you know, the, how terrible the clientele was, the customers, the weather, the hours, mm -hmm. the pay. It was just this constant um, massive gap around not being fulfilled. And it was like just part of the culture. And I just thought, if I don't make something happen here, I could become one of these fantastic people that's kind of lost their way and got into a path that they don't really love. And I knew I wanted to work in a place that I was really passionate about with people that I was proud to work with doing something that I was proud to do. And so I was like, All right, I'm going to go and find, find an opportunity and then did what most people do when they realize after university, they're going to try and apply for a job, which is I'm going to walk into a 30, 35 grand a year job in marketing. And then applied for all these jobs and didn't get anywhere with any of them. Oh. Um, and I realized now, obviously, I was terrible at interviewing at that stage. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time, I was like, there's no experience. Yeah. <laughs> I was 22. <clears throat> and, um, and so I, I realized I needed to find a company that trained people. I had no skills, fundamentally. I'd spent 22 years of my life kind of cruising and, and enjoying myself. Um, so I needed to find a place that really had a strong training program. And I found this really cool company called EIMS, who were just a UK company at that point and were just opening up a Barcelona office, had ambitions to open up in America and over in Asia um, and met these amazing groups of people from all over the world, this pan-European marketing agency. Um, and I was like, my God, this is an incredible place to learn and just fell into well, got one, one, one of my place in that company and kind of just fell into this career around sales and marketing and just absolutely loved it. It was the thing I was best at um, without really like much effort to try and get good quite quickly. Obviously, there was a hell of a lot of learning after that, but kind of hit the ground really, really quickly running, um, was in lots of competitions to become top of the leaderboard and win the weekly meal prize and the credits towards the overperformance conferences where we traveled to like Egypt and oh, wow. Cyprus and all these wonderful places around the world and Morocco. Um, just absolutely loved it. And after doing that for nine months in that role, doing various lead generation projects and marketing and inside sales projects, I had the opportunity to apply for a team management role. Um, I was unsure at that point as to whether I wanted to go down a sales route or a leadership route. Okay. But my manager at the time amazing guy that recruited me called Mark Phelps, probably my first major mentor in life, um, spotted within me some lead leadership traits, which I would never have seen myself. Um, obviously, he didn't know everything about my 20-year football manager career at this stage. <laughs> <laughs> and I was obviously going to be a world-class manager. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's really simple things. Like, he would see me going for lunch and, like, take about four people with me. Obviously, mm. I just didn't like to be alone. But Hello, yeah. <laughs> there's some leadership skills here. And I just started to get involved with training new starters. And, and I really, really like that side of things. So he encouraged me to go down the leadership route, got that opportunity. Mm. Um, funnily enough, when I applied for that role, you had to send a, what's called an email of motivation or letter of motivation. And in my letter, I distinctly remember writing, I do not expect to get this, but my outcome is to learn from oh. this process what i need to learn so yes. i'm ready next time and the reason Amazing. why i didn't think it was two what well, one imposter syndrome definitely mm. i was the youngest person going for it out of a group of about nine people applying for that management role mm. um the newest in the company out of everyone that applied for that role and a lot of the people going for it were my mentors people that had trained me so i just didn't think there was a chance i was going to go and get it plus you know probably without even knowing the terminology growth mindset knew yeah. that going for something and failing wasn't the end of the world if you learn some stuff that helped you to prepare for next time but luckily got it got that opportunity wow. um became a team manager did that for about a year and a half two years then had an opportunity to become an operations manager so managing the managers mm. which was a really interesting transition again youngest and newest person in the team 23 mm. at this age became the manager of a bunch of um people who were recruiting me when I joined the business and training me. What were some of the, the challenges you had with doing that? Uh, mainly just like in my brain. Okay. It was like, right, I'm going to be managing people who recruited me yeah. and trained and me. And look up to these people. Yeah. And I look up to these people. I asked them for help. You know, I didn't mm. have all the answers. wasn't the smartest by any stretch. I think I was just very, very moldable, super mm. competitive, mm. Um, not in a 
you know, there's only, um, you know, what's what Jim Rohn says, right? There's two ways to be the tallest tree in the jungle. One is yeah. chop all the other trees down. To grow. To grow to become the tallest tree. So I was always mm. really, really focused on that. Um, but it was really about really around my head. But I got it quite quickly. Um, you just had to give people respect rather than I am your manager, which means I tell you what to do. It's mm. I'm here to guide mm. and to ask questions and to try and support where I can, but you're going to be better than me in many things. So it's kind of like building a team of strengths rather than, um, you know, people to delegate to, but it was definitely a massive, massive transition. Um, I've learned lots of things through my leadership career from doing things the wrong way and making mistakes. And then did that role for four years, I got to travel to Barcelona and helped to set up that office, which was an incredible experience. Absolutely loved it. Spent about three months in Barcelona. Um, and then got an opportunity to become a business unit director. So managing the UK business unit and went through a 18 month training program to do that, which is wow. really cool. I've not heard of many businesses that offer. That's a long that, time. That kind of level of training program. It was really new for them to create this role. So they put a load of effort and time into developing us. So were you doing that training full time for 18 months or was that part of you on doing like a day of, here, a day there? On, on top, top of being office manager, yeah. Okay. exactly so part of it you're, you're basically acting bud for that time yeah. but you're going through like training programs as well um it's really good some, some funny stories which I, I, I might share and then <laughs> and then uh and then yeah got to spend some time over in auckland spent a year in miami in 2017 which was an amazing experience wow. and then a really big thing happened which is that on i went in january and i'd signed up for a five-year visa and um, with a one-year commitment at least to build this business unit in in Miami. We just bought a business in Fort Lauderdale and we were moving into a bigger office in, in Miami. Um, so obviously wanted that that opportunity. Absolutely. Um, so moved in the January and in the March, I was back home for a for a family uh, family 60th birthday, my uncle and for a friend's wedding. Um, and I was back for that weekend and my sister passed away when I was at, at home with my family. Um, she was only 30 seven at this age i was like 33 or 32 um she had a five-year-old daughter who was in the room when it all happened um, my parent i basically woke up to um to my parents screaming which was horrendous um and it's like definitely the first piece of major trauma i had in my life um so that happened at just like completely really unexpectedly she did have a underlying health condition and it was basically a heart thing that ended up causing it but she just passed away in the night I'm and so, so that changed everything for me, everything, because I'd realized that I'd spent from 23 until 33. So a good sort of 10 year sprint just focused on my career above everything else. It was all I cared about, probably because I just loved it. So mm. I just threw myself into it completely. It wasn't like I am going to have an amazing career. I just loved it and had this opportunity to grow in an amazing company. Um, but I realized I hadn't done anything really with my life. I was 32, 32, 33. Um, and I was in Miami as a business unit director, which is really cool. Um, but what if I was to pass away now? Mm. I hadn't done anything. I hadn't really you know, achieved anything of, of real impact. It certainly didn't have a family, you know, didn't have children, hadn't really done anything that I really wanted to, other than just going down a path that I really enjoyed going down. And so I realized at that point, my values changed. The company was really good during that stage, I had like a sort of five weeks off without having to go back and look after my parents. Obviously, they were going for a lot of trauma and we were looking after a five-year-old. Um, so, and then I went to America, but it wasn't the same. I wasn't the same, was really what happened. Um, and I realized that work had become probably the third or fourth biggest priority in my life, um, where it's always number one. So it kind of reset my brain and I tried to continue going, but... I was going through grief at that stage without really uh, addressing it properly. Um, and it was only really when I started getting some counseling through BetterHelp, which is a really good way of getting counseling, like, you know, for busy people, would recommend it if anyone was interested, um, that I realized I was just, I needed to be home. At the same time, all this was happening. So, probably around the sort of July, my mum, as part of her grief, just basically went into a spiral of, of um depression and got um 
got sectioned under the Mental Health Act to go into a mental health hospital and was there for 26 weeks. So you can imagine I'm in Miami. Yeah. My dad's looking after a five-year-old, lost his daughter and his wife's in mental health hospital. Wow. Um, And to be fair, they were really good. They basically went through a process of like electric current treatment, um, which, which fixed her, but it took until like the May of the year after. So she was in there for 20, yeah, 26 weeks. Um, and I knew that I had to come home. I was like, why, what am I doing in my, my, um, so as soon as that year was up, I came back to, to England, did another year in, in the business. First six months was really good. Last six months, it all started to crumble around me as I, again, I wasn't, I wasn't focused at the level that you have to be in that kind of role with that much responsibility. It's like a six million pound business unit with you know eighty staff. You've got to be really, really on, on the, yeah. run that sort of thing. Um, that I basically was failing, and things were failing around me, and I kind of refused to see it. Partly, I just didn't want to see the reality of, of you know how little I was in control. Um, and so I was given the choice: you you know you either step down into the ops role that you were doing before, um, but it would be a step back, or you know take redundancy. You know. Um, so I took redundancy and used it as a bit of a chance to pause, reflect and think, right, I really want to start a business. I've always wanted to start a business. It's my dream. Everyone does. But, you know, if I'm going to have it now, it's now. It's I've got now, a three-month yeah. window to try and start a business. So I tried to start an e-commerce business, drop shipping art canvases and failed miserably. <laughs> but learned loads about going yes. from being in a quite a senior leadership position with lots of teams and lots of people that you're responsible for we, we you know you're so busy dealing with stuff all the time that you just don't have any time to think to being like you're solely responsible for everything now um be the graphic designer be the financial person be the business person um so learned a load in that nine months of trying to start this business but they've been basically run out of cash and realized <laughs> i had to go and do something different yeah. and i realized at that point whilst i wanted to be entrepreneurial i didn't know how i didn't have an idea um, and I knew that I'd made enough mistakes in that nine months of focusing on the wrong thing and wasting time. That I had to go and find something different. So I had mm. a couple of choices. One was, do I become a salesperson, a sales leader? Um, do I kind of continue what I was doing before and um, and try and do it for a vendor and you know make some brilliant money and then maybe do a passion project on the side? Mm. Or do I just go for a passion project? Do I go into like graphic design or, you know, unfortunately full-time gaming wasn't so popular back then but <laughs> full-time game either something like that um and i i looked around for the job so i just couldn't find anything that i liked so what i realized is i was asking the wrong question i was asking what do i want to do and i realized actually for me who i want to do it with is a much more powerful question um so my biggest lesson there was if you don't like the answers that you're getting in life change the question so i changed the question to who and it was obvious to me who um, I'd met a guy called Steve Bolton, um, an incredible human being, um, really into philanthropy, does a load of stuff to ending homelessness and working with crisis and supporting people locally to, to get off, um, basically get jobs and get back into homes, all those sorts of good stuff, as well as having a few really successful businesses. We'd done a bit of mentoring about eight years before we went to a Jay Abraham event up in London, like a mastermind that he'd organised with Jay Abraham, who's the you know billion dollar coach basically and coach of tony robbins and people like that um and i thought if i could work with steve mm. i know that regardless of what i end up doing it will be amazing if i can be around people like that in their orbit mm. i'll go on an amazing journey and then i'll probably find the answer so i sent him a message on facebook and just said look steve you know i'm available my dream is to work with you i'll never forget your philosophy around be more do more have more mm. and give more um my dream is to start a business with you um and he said yeah cool let's meet for lunch <laughs> next day i was up in um up in the house meeting him and another amazing entrepreneur called richard jackson just to talk about their plans and their strategy for the business and then the next day i was up in london meeting the bolt digital team um and he said look i don't have a job for you but we have a need we're spending half our time recruiting or dealing with some staff issues we've got ambitious growth plans could you help us to fix that problem and i said yeah sure definitely i'd love to do that here's what i would do basically a three slider here's how i would deal with recruitment love a three slider process <laughs> <laughs> with 
onboarding to make sure that we get people in and then make them successful. And here's how I would create a, a leadership development program. And they said, cool, let's go for it. So I just started working with Steve in loads of different areas of the business. But the major thing was build this bold digital team and make the process really great. And so we innovated a lot of the stuff that we've done for the sort of 12 years before when I was at EIMS and then just made it very cool London digital marketing, big event kind of focused ways of dealing with recruitment, putting candidates first. Um, and we realized that that was a really great way of recruiting, completely different. The feedback from candidates was they'd never seen anything like it before. They wished everyone had done it before. Finally, someone was innovating in recruitment. Um, it was a hell of a lot of fun for us. We brought in amazing people into the business, totally value aligned, culturally aligned, amazing, amazing, talented, creative performance marketers and salespeople. Um, and then COVID hit. And like, I don't think you'll speak to anyone who doesn't have a COVID hit story. Um, but in the world of marketing and digital marketing, that meant that everyone went, well, what do we do now? Pause. So the business had to reshape a little bit. Obviously, it boomed again. Everything in beauty and e-commerce boomed really, really quickly afterwards. As people wanted to take care of themselves. But we realized that was our opportunity to try and start to do this as a business. We could take all the stuff that we built in terms of processes and systems around recruitment and start to do them for clients. And so we started working with one of the bulk digital clients on a marketing role, which was really successful. And then we just started going out into the world to try and create uh, a bit of a client base and learn all the stuff that we knew we didn't know. So we did that for two years, was really successful, um, as well as lots of failures, lots of learnings, but did enough of a great job in that time um, and carved out enough of a network and you know reputation to make the decision literally at the beginning of, the, of April to launch my own business, which is Tick Talent, still with the support of Steve and David, who's the chief financial officer, but my own my own business and that kind of brings me up to today but today. i'm definitely way over time and i would have failed myself on the interview <laughs> <laughs> so do you know actually how long in the interview would you expect someone to answer that question for well this is this is this is why i love the question so yeah. there's no there's no answer i'm not saying okay. right unless they do it in five minutes yeah, and, yeah. You know, it's not that it's it gives people a chance to tell a story yeah and so in sales and marketing, which is the roles that we recruit for and, and leadership mm. roles, it's not really about do you have a you know chartership in engineering. It's mm. how, how do you are tell you a story? And to be honest, I loved hearing about? your story. I really yeah, enjoyed hearing your story. So I'm like, go as long as you want at any point. <laughs> <laughs> you know, how how vulnerable you prepared to be? Yeah. Um, are you fun? Do you like what do you focus on? Is there big mm. parts that you've skipped? Um, so there's no right or wrong answer. It's more is it engaging? Do I find it interesting? And then obviously from that point, then you can just focus on wherever else they've covered wherever. rather than having a sort of set of 20 HR vetted interview questions that you're going to ask every single candidate. Because mm. I think, to be honest, I'm going to ask more people that question on the podcast and be like, yeah. from birth to now, tell me your life yeah. story, see where it okay. goes. <laughs> you have to pre-frame it. So there's a bit ahead of that, which is important okay. because if you, people would just think you're nuts. And I'm not going <laughs> If you interviewed 90% of the people that I've interviewed, they'd probably think I'm nuts yeah. just because it's so weird and Steve says wacky way of interviewing people. Um, but you have to pre-frame it. So obviously when someone walks into an interview, what are they feeling? A little bit nervous. Really nervous, right? <laughs> spend a load of time preparing. So they spend yeah. all this time reading through the website, reading through whatever they can to try and learn about the business. They're full of information. So they've overloaded themselves with information and they they might have if it's like they're a bit out of practice they spend some time researching how to answer difficult interview questions yeah and they're going please ask me about my weaknesses <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> so they're full of stuff and they're nervous particularly if it's face-to-face mm. -face, which obviously mm. all interviews were face-to-face -face before covid um and so they're really nervous. You've got to make people feel comfortable. So the first thing is make them feel really comfortable. Make sure you bring them, offer them a drink, bring them a water, make sure they're sitting comfortably. Maybe walk them around the, the office to meet a few people, get them to feel comfortable. And then just ask them a couple of questions about the process they've had so far. I'm talking this is kind of like the final interview rather than the first interview. Right. Um, so get them okay. to tell the story of how they found it, all that sort of stuff. And then this, the way I, I'm giving all my secrets away now, but that's the value of content, right? Exactly. It's the way the way I would frame an interview is I say, right, for this interview to be worth your time and worth my time because they're they're just as important. I want to do a deal. 
Um, okay. And then they said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly hesitant. Okay. Yeah, exactly. What do you okay. Want? <laughs> but, and then probably about 10% of people say, what's the deal? But everyone else says, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, so it's a two-part deal. The first is I want you to be as honest with me as you would be with the person to your closest to in the world. So be as honest. Just be totally, be totally yourself. Be totally honest. Answer how you would actually answer. Don't try and be this cut, you know, like cardboard cutout version of yourself trying to pass an interview. Be yourself, mm. um, and just be totally honest. There's no right or wrong answer. I'd much prefer the truth. And if you ask me anything, I'll be totally honest. I won't be whatever character I'm playing. I will be me. And then the second part of the deal was to be you on purpose. Um, it's so easy to be um in interview mode and forget to kind of let your personality shine and i think that there's a, the worst thing in the world is that you wouldn't get a job because someone didn't see enough of your personality mm. and if you did get a job where you didn't show your true personality and then and when then you it comes to work yeah. everyone was like whoa <laughs> you're in a place that's going to stifle you so mm. be yourself on on purpose and then obviously shake on it and then go right um, first question from birth to <laughs> being in the today. What's the story of your life? And that worked. It works really, really well because you're. I mean, we can unpick it together because you might have a different perspective. But it just gets people to. You've got an upfront verbal contract on something. You've framed exactly how you want people to be, which is really comfortable, really open, and that it's probably going to be a bit of a strange interview. So let you let you guard down and be yourself, and then just go with the flow. I think I really like the concept of the you be honest with me, I'll be honest with you. Yeah. Because I feel like sometimes what's really hard about interviews from both sides is that I'm trying to suss out that person in the space of yeah. like an hour and then commit yeah. to working with them for however long is going to yeah. happen after that. It's actually yeah. really, really hard. So yeah. I really like that having a verbal contract in terms of this is my expectation of you, this is your expectation of me. Yeah. Let's both bring our honest selves because if we are going to work together, like I want to know, like, am I actually going to enjoy working with you or am I not? Like, let's yeah. actually find that out. You know, so I really, yeah. I really, really like that. And I think the tell me your life story, it's like everybody knows their life story. You know, only they do, right? There's no right or wrong answer, is there? Exactly. Like, yeah. you know that they can be comfortable. And what I loved about watching you is watching the emotion as you went through the different parts of your life story. Sure. You know? And that's, I feel like that's a really great way to bond with people. So I really like that. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And interviews are two way, right? And I think most people forget 100%. this. Um, because we like weirdly, it's probably the area of leadership training that people focus on the least. Mm. It's like, you know, you watch someone do an interview and then you basically copy it. So you've basically got this kind of like, you know, bodge job of 20 years worth of bad habits that have just been passed down. And it's always from the perspective, I am making a decision on you. Mm. Very few people treat it as a two way process. So probably half the interviews, I mean, myself and the old MD of um, of Bolt Digital, who actually now works in one of um, Stephen Bartlett's businesses, amazing guy called Luke Courtney Smith, probably about half the interviews we ended up doing, we used to do that intro and then say, right, cool, your interview, ask me questions. You know, please interview us. You know, do you want to How do people that? respond to that? Um, most people are quite surprised, but then yeah. they it, it often forms a much better interview because you're not in control. Um, and so the path they take it and the questions that they ask are really revealing. And if they can get you really talking, then they're probably going to be a blooming brilliant inquisitive mm. marketer, great salesperson or great mm. leader. Mm. Um, so it works. It works really well. But obviously some people go a bit rabbit in the headlights. But again, it's all about the making people feel warm and, mm. you know, open and comfortable mm. before they start. Um, but yeah, most people don't ask people to if they oh, here's the worst question in the interview ever. Um, do you have any questions? closed question everyone says no so that's the, the, um, if you're if you, at the end of an interview go right cool so we've asked all of our questions now um do you have any questions i heard so many people do this so many people um hmm. rather than even just the simple change of saying what questions do you have you know the classic like, training you're yeah, doing a training yeah. Open question. Say, if you're in a training you go any questions no one's got any questions no gonna... say, what questions do you have it makes a massive difference. Oh. But actually having a whole section, half the interview, I'm the, I might really believe that half of the, the interview should be them interviewing you. Mm. Um, and it's fine to tell people up front, right? You know, I want half of this interview to be you to be telling us. Maybe even, you know, when you send the invite, first 30 minutes you interview us, 
second 30 minutes of the interview it just makes it two way which is really important because like you say you're making a decision on someone to work together for a number of years mm. they are too mm. and i think if you get that right you end up getting the decision right much more often obviously it's not an exact science but you definitely increase the odds if you make it natural that's so interesting because i was talking to someone and they were saying about you know should i save all my questions for the end of the interview or yeah. all the way through and i'm like ideally it would just be a conversation that you can be yeah. asking questions back and forth but yeah. i'm also aware that some people like they want to get through their questions and then they yeah. want you to follow up like do you have any questions like i've been taught you always have questions right you should always yeah. ask questions when someone asks yeah. do you have any questions i'm like in my head it's like ask questions ask. so yeah, yeah, yeah. it's so yeah. interesting that people say no yeah yeah yeah, it's so yeah exactly well, yeah well most people most people say the, the most common answer it'll be interesting to hear other people's view on this but mm. my experience when someone says um, do you have any questions? Someone will probably go, no, you've answered all the questions throughout the process. Yeah. And then yeah, they're going to fail the interview as a result. Yeah. <laughs> you've, got, you've, you've got no questions. And again, we, we work in sales, marketing and leadership roles. Mm. Um, mm. It's all about your curiosity. It's your greatest strength. So if someone's got no questions, they're, gonna, they're always going to fail that interview. Mm. Um, or they've got a very, very clear list of pre-written questions which don't really follow up from the conversation, which is important because you don't want to walk away going, well, that was great chat, but I didn't mm. find out the commission structure, you know, yeah. <laughs> the leadership style is going to be like what the vision of the company is. I don't know anything. Um, so it is important to do that. But but yeah, it's not, it's not something that you should rush or be too premeditated. Um, yeah, that's my, just my Do you know what? So before we do this podcast, people are always like, can you send me a list of questions? Yeah. And I'm like, no, because I don't actually know what you're going to say. So until I know what you're going to say, yeah. any questions I have will be very like vague. But what really yeah. comes good is like, okay, you said this and I can ask you about that. So yeah. that's why I'm like, I don't actually want to send you questions before because I just want to see what comes out of your mouth and see where we go, yeah. you know? Yeah, exactly. Which is more fun. And on a podcast, you can do that, right? Because yeah. at the end of the day, if it's entertaining and you've learned something, that it's, it's great. Great. Yeah, when you're great. making a decision about your future, um, it does become a bit more serious, doesn't it? Um, but it should feel as natural as possible. But mm. yeah, I just think it's one of those things. People at interviews are generally terrible, and and most recruitment processes are horrendous, absolutely mm. horrendous from the perspective mm. of candidates. Um, that's why we created this business because we just really think it's so broken. I know it's mm. very fashionable to say that something is broken and we're the knights. But, but you're actually fixing it though. That's the thing. Trying to fix it. Um, but I think because I never came from a recruitment background, my role was always to mm. find people for my teams mm. Mm. Um, and from all around the world in different languages. Like, you know, probably 80% of the people I interviewed were speaking to me in English as a second language. So you have to oh. really be very specific and deliberate in the way that you communicate. Mm. Um, so but I just think most people interview terribly and they make the process for candidates so painful. It's so structured. Section one, HR interview. And, you know, what's the first question you often get asked in an interview when you first apply for a company? Why do you want to work here? Yeah. <laughs> Why do you want to work here? I don't know. I hit, I hit easy apply on LinkedIn. I literally clicked a button. It's yeah. that easy, right? So most people go, I don't, I don't, why would you expect that they want to work in your business? There's this massive entitlement that someone applies for your company. They're yours, and it's your decision to rule them in or out. You are God. Mm. Um, you know, like all the Roman, that, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not. Right? An application for me is a, like a, a you know, hand raiser. I think yes. I want to learn some more. So the fundamental flip, that we believe like to my very very core is that a job a company's job at the start of an interview process is to sell the company mm. sell the company mm -hmm. that's why we do talent events we bring a group of people into the office to meet the team and learn from the founders why they started the business mm. where are they going as a business what's the vision why is it important what's the difference they're making in the world why do they need people on the ship what's the expectation that where you're going and why you started is 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 everything. And I think most job adverts, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent now, but most job adverts are just copy and pasted job descriptions. And they're horrendous. A job description is not purposed at advertising or selling a role. Mm -hmm. It's like a ship. Like let's say you were trying to recruit uh, you know sailors to join your ship, crew to mm -hmm. join your ship. Um and you 
we're just basically selling the ship. Our ship's got eight gyms, 16 restaurants, you know, sun deck, limitless bars. Your room's got this view. It's got this bed. This is the mattress. This is the, you know, the thread count of the sheets. That's what a job description feels like is that detailed. Whereas it should be, well, where's the boat going? If you tell me that you've got the most amazing boat in the world, but it's going to be moored in Southampton for the next six years, I'm not getting no, on. <laughs> no, thank you. But if you tell me this is a world cruise and we're mm. going here mm. and that me joining here has the path to become something else as part of mm. this journey, um, that's where people want to want to go. So mm -hmm. I think that the psychology is you have to give people reasons to want to join you. You didn't ask mm. why do you want to join. I'd love it if someone said, I honestly don't know. I know nothing about your business. Tell me about it. And then for the person to be like, okay, this is an opportunity rather than, oh my God, they turned up completely unprepared. Unprepared, yeah. <laughs> exactly. What other questions? What, let, let, let's, let's unpick this. So, so they've asked you why you want to join. What other yeah. questions are you going to get asked in your standard interview? What do you know about the company? What, what do you know, know about, about the company? And in realistic terms, what has that person done to learn about the business? Gone on the website. Gone on your website. Mm. It's like, they might as well say, tell me what our website says because mm. that's all they want to know it's mm. just it's just hilarious so they ask they, they they are they prepared that's what they are the two questions and i see so much on linkedin about you know making sure you're really prepared for an interview um i think it doesn't deal with the fundamental problem that people are turning up for an interview mm. um probably with 15 other interviews booked in after mm. 100 job applications expecting mm. to hear a no um, and expecting the same questions. Why, you know, it's ridiculous. You're only ever going to get a superficial answer. Anyone says that I would love to work for your business because you won this award and you're featured mm. here on the Garch and Garner nice. Magic Quadrant. Like, nice. nonsense. Absolute nonsense. So, See, question, so how would you recommend that a candidate goes through the process with emotional intelligence and shows their emotional intelligence even if the questions aren't great? Um, so the questions are unlikely to be great. So I wouldn't even have an expectation that they are. Um, how do they do it with emotional intelligence? Mm. That's a difficult question. I mean, I mean, they can do it with just how can they do it in a human way, right? So mm. if you if I'd apply for a job, mm. um, obviously, this is like utopian, the way of describing it, how it should be. But mm. in reality, people apply for jobs, they hear back from 16% of the jobs they apply for. That's the data. 16%. You'll hear back. That's not even that's not getting interview. Mm. It's hear back. So 84% of the time you never get a response mm. for a job. So by the time you actually do get an interview, and obviously you can be much more sniper around the way that you do that. But if you had an interview booked in with the company, probably the best thing you could do is reach out to a couple of people that work in that company. Mm. Most powerful thing ever mm. is to reach out and say, Hey, I've applied for this role, I've got an interview. I'd love to know a bit more about your experience. You know, what do you like about it? What's it really like? What's the culture like? You know, what advice would you give me to, to sort of show my best self? You know, mm -hmm. if it's a sales role, you know, what's the product like? What the feedback mm -hmm. do you get from customers? How many of you guys are on target? Um, you know, what's the greatest thing about the company? And if there's one challenge, what, what is it? Mm -hmm. um, so I think if you can get some insights from someone who doesn't have a vested interest in the interview process, then that's the best way you could possibly do it. Mm. Um, and it's more powerful than like kind of reading the marketing collateral because it's obviously going to be incredibly heavily biased what a company says about it. Um, you can obviously go onto Glassdoor and get some reviews, but who goes onto Glassdoor and goes, I had an amazing experience. I'm going to write my amazing review. Most people go on there to vent if they haven't had the chance to do so. So I think Glassdoor and RepView and all those things, they're great but you're kind of looking for clusters. Was there a really tight cluster of negative reviews around one specific time? Mm -hmm. Because that's more interesting. You know, you could say, I noticed that there was a bunch of feedback around this at this time, but then it kind of stopped. Mm. Can you tell me more about that? And if a company's really open and they can tell you about, this is what we did wrong, because no company's perfect. Like no, none of us are perfect. So they're gonna have made mistakes. So if they're really open about the way they've made mistakes, what they've done to rectify it, and what they learned, I mean, that's probably an amazing company to work for. If they're like, oh, no, those were very disgruntled employees. We don't, you know, we don't talk about them. Mm. And they're probably a really bad company to work <laughs> for. And if you, let's say you ask the team what it's like mm. working in the company, and they're really nice, probably a great company, right, with a great culture. Mm. And if they're really, if they didn't respond 
if they're short with you, if they're rude, it's probably a bad culture, a bad environment. So you probably learn a lot. If they've got a sales line to phone up and ask some questions, even better, right? Because then you can actually speak to someone. How do you get treated on that first call? Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's a face-to-face interview, how do, how do you get treated in reception if you still go for into a, a reception if anyone has any, any of those anymore? But do people walk past and say hello? You know, mm. do you get, you know, welcomed nicely or just kind of everyone stare at you like you're some kind of alien that's walked in the door? So I think there's probably a load of clues before you even turn up and then get asked whatever questions you're going to go and get asked, mm. um, which would help you to prepare. But I think everyone, why does everyone want to hire someone that's interested and, you know, prepared and proactive? So if you've done a bit of prep to find out what the company's like, I think most people would find that incredibly attractive to want to hire you um, versus that you're really good at handling objections and tough questions and coming out smelling great. Because I think what I was what I was trying to understand is so it also depends on what's your de- definition of emotional intelligence, right? So sure. the the quite common themes are like how do you deal with your emotions and how do you kind of interact with other people, understand yeah. what they're what they want, what are they doing, and then yeah. kind of that interplay. So when I was asking about going through those questions with that, what I'm trying to understand is, let's say you're getting pretty poor questions, right? Yeah. How can you deal with that in such a way that's good, graceful? but then you can still bring out some of the gold, you yeah. know, even if the questions are pretty poor. So like if you were asked, you know, about the, how would you, you know, why do you want to work here? How would you answer yeah. that question? Yeah. Well, I mean, you probably you should have an answer, right? But <laughs> <laughs> probably, yeah. If you've got through to the, the interview, then you probably should have an answer. But I just think, and again, it's like, how do you handle it with grace? Don't be annoyed about it, right? Probably me saying that it's a bad question is probably putting in people's brains that they should find it offensive that someone would have the audacity to ask them why they should work in a business. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, <laughs> it's a person asking the question. I think what's, mm. what is a bad question would be a question that's unclear. Mm. So like I just went on a five minute tangent after you asking a question, I didn't ask what would you like, you know, what's the reason for you asking the question? What prompted the question? What's the theory behind the question? So or, do you think I asked a bad question? No, oh, I don't know. <laughs> you got me talking, isn't it? A bad question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I think if you don't, if a question's bad, it's unclear mm. fundamentally. So just mm. ask more questions around it. You know, mm. when you say, um, you know, I, I'm trying to think of a terrible question. You know, why do you want to work here? And you can say, well, I, you know, I can definitely answer that question. But what I'd really like to understand is from the people that you've hired, mm. what's the most common reason that they say they love working in your business? Mm. Might be a good way of doing it, but then you're kind of answering a question with a question. Um, I just think if people ask you a question, then answer it as best you as best you can. And if they ask you ten terrible questions, then maybe mm. it's just wrong the wrong company for you to work in. If you find them terrible. And I think what's interesting for me is that we've all kind of, like you said, we've all gone into interviews, watched other people do them and been taught yeah. this is how you do interviews. So I think that part of it for me is that like people do the best that they can with what sure. they have, if that yeah. makes sense. So yeah. they might just not know how to do an interview. And if yeah. I can do some of the stuff that you're saying in terms of, okay, open up with a bit more questions and things like that, depending yeah. on how they respond for me is probably what would determine if I wanted yeah. to work there or not because like I said if they're yeah. short if they're like if they shut it down then I know that actually even me being curious they don't really value that yeah and that's where I think it's a really good thing to do anyway even just to understand like okay how do they take stuff like that if people are asking questions and things like that like is it okay you know yeah. does it get shut down does it get expanded are they like oh actually good question and do they do they are they curious are they interested? yeah, you know? yeah it's a good point it's a good point I think it's funny it's like you know I've studied communication and listen to so many of my own calls and other people's calls like to the you know tiniest detail of intonation and the way the questions are phrased so i'm obsessed mm. with the subject to the point where mm. it's like um if you're a painter and you walked into a room that hadn't been painted very well all you see is the mistakes the imperfections yeah yeah exactly exactly I, like at golf like I'm, I'm a bad enough golf player that i only, only remember, remember my good shots those <laughs> shots in the round whereas yeah. <laughs> where i've got friends who are really really high handicap golfers or low handicap mm. golfers um and they just you know rue those two bad shots so i think it's a bit mm. like you know i've exposed myself to a level of um, curiosity around the subject of questioning and communication mm. that I find anything that's um, 
I find it really obvious of things that are the same, repetitive, mm. done without much thought. Um, whereas most people, you know, people aren't doing it for bad intentions. And if they are, then yeah, get the hell out of there. <laughs> <laughs> I really liked that switch between do you have any questions to even something like what would you like to ask me? Yeah. You know, like, I, I that's so subtle, but that's so nice. I really like that. Yeah. I'm stealing that. Yeah. Yeah, steal it. And then another, um, when I was in Miami, I worked with an amazing guy called Adam Rosenberg. Um, and he taught me two words. Obviously, I knew the words, but I never really learned <laughs> in, in, in this structure. But yeah. the power of what else? What else? Mm. So he used to just say, what else? And it's amazing how much what else you get when you ask the question. So if you say to someone, mm. you know, what would you like to ask me? What questions do you have? And they say, da, 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 da. And you answer it, have a conversation. Oh, what else? And if you just keep saying what else, it's amazing how much more people give you. Um, so I think that's really, really powerful rather than having your f top five questions that you're going to ask. Because then mm. basically after you've asked your first question, you're just waiting for your chance to ask the second. And that just doesn't mm. really flow very well. Mm. Mm. That's really good. What's that's the best really interview questions you've ever been asked? So my interview experience is very, very limited. Right, so I basically, out of university, got into the grad scheme at Sky, so I had interviews through that. Mm. Um, and then I've had maybe one or two interviews since then, so I'm not, you know, I'm not very well versed, and they've all been internal, so. And have you done much firing for your own teams? Yeah, but I would say, from listening to you, I'm probably not a very good interviewer, so. <laughs> what questions did you really love to ask? Have you always had an interesting conversation off the back of it? Um, so some of the questions that I like are some of the, you know, like comedy based ones, like give me an example of a time where you've been able to X, Y, Z okay. and giving people that kind of space as to like, to talk a bit more about experiences. Cause I like seeing how people engage with their memories. Yeah. Right? So seeing how someone recalls something and can yeah. bring that back and then you can see them kind of battling with, do I say this? Do I not say that? Like, I really like that kind of thing to be honest. Yeah. Like, because you know what you said about um, when you applied for that job and you're like, because I know that if I don't get it, it's okay because it's learning and that kind of thing. Yeah. That's how I'm, I love that because yeah. that kind of person is going to be fine, whatever they're in. Yeah, sure. Know? So I like questions that really get to understand like, where is someone coming from? What are their motivations? How do they deal with failure? Like, what does failure look like for them? Because yeah. even that is like, those are the kind of questions that I like, I like answer, having answered. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Yeah, I like mm -hmm. it. And are there any questions that you always, you know, did you have to ask set questions? Were you told you have to ask these questions and then there were some that you just knew that you didn't really love to ask or not? So we have like this big interview builder thing where it's got like, you know, if you want to ask about leadership, here are some questions you okay. should ask. If you want to ask about this, yeah. here are some questions you should ask. Yeah. Um, and like, you do get some some good answers if you can ask good follow up questions, I think yeah. is, what, is what I've been really trying to learn how to do is like, okay, how do I follow up to really get further and yeah. to understand like the core of why they did the why they did kind of thing yeah yeah interesting interesting yeah so it was, what i realized what i found out afterwards is that elon musk asks that birth to to now Does he? which i didn't know <laughs> i never even heard of elon musk when we started doing it but then he asks what's your greatest achievement in life and then he asks, and what did what was your role in that? And he wants to know about this great thing that you've done. Like yeah. you are a high performance person, but he gets into the real detail around how much you were involved in it. And unless people can talk through the like tiny details of things yes. they did, things they owned, then they weren't responsible for it. Because everyone's been involved in it. In I suppose when you apply for Tesla or SpaceX, you've all been involved in billion dollar projects with massive yeah. <laughs> things. Oh, yes, I don't funded. think I have. Yeah. <laughs> SpaceX people, yes. Yeah, exactly. Right. The real specifics of the role that you played within that and i find that really interesting um that's so such an interesting concept because i don't think i could tell you what my greatest achievement is i've never actually sat down and thought of what would i say is my greatest achievement i don't think i yeah. can answer that question could you um i, I think probably two weeks ago getting married <laughs> <laughs> good answer <laughs> very good answer <laughs> Congratulations, yeah, by the yeah, way. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was it was absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. Like, perfect day, and I'm very, very proud. Um, mm. and just before my 40th birthday, so quite late. Um, so that was amazing. I learned loads of things. I'm very proud of being, a, you know, the youngest manager in the company, being a mm. 30 year old director of a business, traveling to 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 America, setting up a business. Mm. Um, <clears throat> all the people that I've had the opportunity to work with. There's so many 
there's so many things you know a single single moment i'd have to but say what's the greatest though that's the thing the greatest yeah definitely yeah. getting married that's my okay. greatest achievement yeah okay good <laughs> good <laughs> um so emotional intelligence yeah what does it mean to you because i don't actually know what it means to you yeah sure um this is a good question so I definitely have a higher emotional intelligence than I do an IQ. <laughs> okay. Definitely. And I've done a few IQ tests and I score, I'm pretty much bang in the middle okay. of, of IQ. But I I know through experience that I have a probably higher than average level of emotional intelligence. Mm. Um, and I don't know where, where that comes from. I think I have probably more of a female brain than a male brain in that I'm much more intuition-led um much more people focused than pragmatic mm. much more sort of you know i think in feelings a lot i pick up on okay. energy quite a lot okay. well I found out, this is like very recent but a couple of years ago i found out my dad sees auras and like really? if you met my dad there's no like there's not even like one percent of hippie in my dad <laughs> you might consider like the kind of classic traits of someone who might do auras for yeah. a living yeah, yeah, yeah. against it um <clears throat> but he sees auras physically and he will literally if you ask him he can say you have a today a purple aura and it's this sort of vivid and it goes out this far and i'm like that's insane so maybe oh, it's amazing. like i don't see auras but i definitely feel energy and i can okay. see energy like if i walk into an environment with a bad energy in the room mm. um or i meet someone i just don't connect with the energy it's painful for me Mm. Um, whereas, whereas some people, and definitely you, you, one of these people, Taylor, and I've only met you on video call, so I'm sure in real life it's even more powerful. But like sunshine people that light up, light up oh. room, right? You know, and I always used to talk about this like two types of people, very obviously generalist, but there's batteries and mm. drains. And yeah. batteries, like you're probably people, if you think about you're going to go and meet someone, mm. you know you're going to meet them, you're already feeling positive. Yes. And then like you go, you're like, you stop, you see them from across the road and you're like, yeah. you're like lit up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You spend time with them and you walk away just like energized. Mm. And then there are people who are drained. Mm. And it's obviously for you, right? I'm not saying they walk around being drained, but you're not looking forward to seeing them. You'll probably try and find an excuse not to. When you see them, they kind of just drain the energy out of you. Mm. And when you're finished talking with them, you just feel completely flat um so radiators and drains so for me it's about what is emotional intelligence is about being consciously aware that we are emotional beings that we are mm. basically a bunch of humans just mm. trying to do great things and be able to pick up on how other people might be thinking and i think probably in the like the psychology side of it it's about like the nlp thing which is the map have you heard you know much about nlp I know very little about NLP. So, <laughs> anyone listening to this that's a practitioner will be like, right, okay, come on then. Let's show me what you got on NLP. Yeah. I've, I've very, 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 very loosely studied it and do find it fascinating. Mm. Um, but there's a there's a line in NLP, which is neuro linguistic programming, mm. basically how we program our brains through language and learn the world, which is the map is not the territory. So, that's like the explanation of, of NLP. The map is not the territory which okay. on its own sounds very, very strange. Yeah. What it means is we have a map of how the world is, but that doesn't mean that's how the world is. It's just our map. Uh... So myself and you mm. might go to a restaurant mm. and we would order this exactly the same food mm. and we would taste that food and have a completely different experience of it. Mm. I might love it. You might hate it. Mm music we might hear the same piece of music and have a completely different impression of it hmm. so your the map which is how you see the world is not how the world is and everyone has their own map hmm. so if you go around understanding that everyone hasn't their own map so i'm not right you're not wrong hmm. you're not wrong i'm not right hmm. is a really great starting point to show a bit of emotional intelligence because then i'm not going to get upset if you don't you know agree with me on something I'm going to go, I'm fascinated to understand how you see this world. Because mm. I know I'm just seeing my map, but the territory is different. Wow. You know, I think that's a really, really powerful way of dealing with it. Because is what is emotional intelligence? Realizing that you're, you don't, you're not right. 
they're not wrong mm. but you just might know more information than them and half the mm. time probably one of you just has some information that the other one doesn't have or there's a load mm. of you know values biases and stuff that's been led in that you're never going to agree on mm. um but fundamentally people are people with their own experiences and that's why they think and feel and act and behave and make you feel in certain ways and it's, it's kind of like that picture where you've got two people stood opposite each other and there's like a six in the middle and one okay, of them's yeah. like it's a six the other one's yeah. like it's a nine it's like yeah. you're both right but yeah. you're just both looking from a different perspective yeah yeah exactly mm. i think most arguments come from people believing they're right and someone else is wrong mm. most upset comes from people believing that someone's wrong to have done something mm. um or someone's an idiot you know all mm. that sort of stuff or, or most and most arguments actually become about a word that someone's thrown let's say you're having an argument with your yeah. wife which obviously yeah. you never you would never do but my wife's Italian, so we can argue <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, most arguments halfway through you'll say something like you know i don't know i don't know something and then a word will come in and then that word becomes the problem because in that mm. in their world that word is a completely different association to you mm. you know or they'll say something about about you with a word and then you're like oh, how could you say how that you word say that? <laughs> yeah. just yeah. and you know you need to understand that, that certain words and triggers and all those sorts of things so yeah. i don't really have a succinct wonderful clear dictionary definition of emotional intelligence but i think it's just knowing that um people are emotional no one's right no one's wrong and that fundamentally if you can put yourself kind of in someone else's shoes and try and see the world through their eyes mm. probably most of the time you're going to get a much better outcome than if you try and enforce your beliefs and views and opinions on someone else and that's mm. just going to cause a load of conflict to be honest i didn't really want a succinct dictionary answer like that was perfect i think the map is not the territory is very profound i really like that um yeah not my work <laughs> that's absolutely fine that's absolutely fine um wow no, i really like that i really really like that um so you've just started tick talent yeah so you said in like this month april or last april yeah so we kind of, we like we were building in march and then we launched properly on the on the first of april that's amazing congratulations Congratulations. So what are you looking forward to next with Tick Talent? Yeah, so um it's quite it's funny. <laughs> so so I haven't I've always, I have always have a business plan and I have a target mm. to achieve this year. Um but I honestly think in year one with any mm. business, the job is to survive. Mm. If I can still have my business in a year's time, mm. what I would have had to have done that year in mm. terms of, you know convincing people that they can trust me with their roles and and to work with them and then to do a good enough job to find the right people and for those people to mm. be successful it's, it's it's really hard to build something from scratch um so if i can survive in year one that would be amazing mm. but the goal is to have an amazing business that i love that people mm. love to work with really small number it's like the jerry Maguire thing a really small number of select clients that you absolutely love you really believe in Mm. that you've got a really strong relationship with you're not a supplier mm. um you're a proper partner for them friend mm. to them and it's just a pleasure to work with them because i think in recruitment the worst thing in the world and it's obvious when you attach remuneration to success i.e placing people that some people might just want to place people mm. um, and just get people in mm. but that's for me would be complete failure if we place someone into a business and then that business didn't get what they wanted from that person or the person didn't like the business and it wasn't success that would be incredibly painful for, for us and for me so the vision is to build a business that i absolutely love where everyone hears the word tick talent and loves it we start to build a very small niche reputation as being really strong in our field um helping a load of people and then those people just keep coming back with new challenges questions and problems as and when and become a bit of a you know trusted advisor very simply being someone that people trust to get advice from mm. um to help them to achieve their goals and we mainly work with the startup community so okay big businesses are less attractive to us just because they're kind of their vision is mm. so far away from the original founding story 
that I love getting in at that really early stage where you're talking to either the founder or the senior leadership team and they're building something because that journey of building something is just absolutely beautiful. And I joined a business when it was very small and it became a global, you know, 450 person business with offices around the world. Now that journey yeah. was amazing part of. So we love working with those sorts of businesses. So if we can find work with some incredible people and incredible businesses who need some incredible people who have incredible careers, mm. that would be success. That's awesome. And we'll put the link um, to your company in the show notes and everything like that. And it'll be great for people yeah. to connect with you. So yeah, um, just awesome. Just as we close, what's the best advice that someone's given you about leadership? Yeah, so lots of different advice. Single piece of best advice, probably the one that springs to mind is Mark Phelps, who told me your job as a leader is to make the people above you and below you successful. Oh. And I was like, that's very powerful. Because then it just takes powerful. you it takes you out of the equation. Of it. Mm. And if you spend all your time trying to make your boss's life easier, make mm. them achieve their goals and your team be successful, have fun, grow. Mm. Then you 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 get taken care of yourself. You don't have to think about it. So that's probably the single that's great thank you so much thank you for being here today i've really enjoyed our conversation and i'm sure everyone listening in will very much enjoy it too um yeah really appreciate your time thank you thank you pleasure and thank you all for listening as well um and we will catch you guys on the next episode goodbye